Phoenix Park. Two bodies lie bloody on the ground. One on the path, one on the road. One dead, one still dying. The people of Dublin were appalled last evening by a report which proved unfortunately too true that Lord Frederick Cavendish, the newly appointed Chief Secretary, and Mr. Thomas H. Burke, the Under Secretary, had been brutally murdered in the Phoenix Park. The statement was at first disbelieved, so improbably was such an event looked upon. Later in the night, when inquiries were made, all reports were found to be justified. Before Inspector John Mallon would be summoned to the scene, a lieutenant of the Royal Dragoons, out walking his dogs, happened upon the felled men on the roadway. He raced off, finding a couple of constables who dismissed the matter, refusing to believe the man and telling him they were off duty. Two cyclists who had caught sight of four men hanging off a jaunting car as it sped away past them from the park came across the bodies in turn. Cavendish, no doubt a ghastly sight, was still breathing. Eventually police would arrive. A surgeon, Dr Miles, rushed to the park and determined that Burke had died almost instantly. Cavendish would take his final breaths just as the surgeon reached him. Inspector Mallon was on his way. Over a decade after the event, Mallon would recount the event of this case in his writings on Secret Service, published in papers internationally week by week. The truth of these reminiscences has been questioned over time. Suggestions have arisen that Mallon embellished his own involvement, probably true, and knowledge of events at times, probably true too. Nevertheless, The first news of the tragedy came to me in my own house. Although it was little of home we used to get in those days. I was living at the time at North Circular Road and had an appointment to keep at 8 o'clock in the evening. It had been a very hot day and the air was very sultry even after sundown. So as I was likely to be on duty late, I went home to change my boots, leaving my colleague Detective Simmons on the way home. About seven o'clock, a detective officer came running to my house and gasped out that the undersecretary and his brother had been murdered in Phoenix Park. Upon reaching the scene, Mallon ascertained that the second victim was Cavendish, not Burke's brother as mistakenly reported to him at first. Mallon had met Cavendish that morning. He recognised the hat and umbrella that lay strewn around. Robbery was quickly dismissed. Money found in the pockets of both victims. I remained some time on the ground, taking evidence of those who had seen the cars and the struggle, including two bicyclists who were draper's assistants and two men from the Inchy Core Works, and then commenced the task of unravelling the problem. Who were the guilty men? Let's have a closer look at Mallon. Till this point, ever-present, but skirting around the fringes of the story. He was a Catholic. He was working class. He never pretended that he was anything else but an Irishman and an Irish nationalist. He stumbled into the police really by accident. He was going to, like many, many, many Irishmen, was going to join the military. He didn't succeed. He, he, he bumps into the local landlord walking through Dublin. The local landlord says, I know the head of the of the Metropolitan Police, let's go and have a chat with them. So they went and they had a chat and they took the young lad in and he was basically the office boy. And, and, and Mallon 
of course, goes up the ladder. He's always referred to as Inspector Malin, uh, nearly as a term of affection. He was one of these characters that wandered the streets and wandered is the word. And of course, he was a big, solid bear of a man. So he, he stood out. And, and his philosophy always was, well, essentially one of, of intimidation. Um, he, was, he was certainly had nothing to do with violence, but he did intimidate. And by intimidation, uh, I mean several things. First of all, the use of what they call shadowing. Now, shadowing was where you had a detective who followed a man around. Now, he, they made no secret of the fact, although officially it didn't happen, but from the point of view of the, of the, the, the Republican that was being followed, they didn't try to disguise themselves. So they knew that they, the police were watching them. The other thing that he did was he, he himself used to hang out in known Athenian IRB bars. So he would be seen there. Physically, he would be seen there. And, and that acted as, as a deterrent. And he intimidated and he bribed. Uh, we're talking about a couple of pounds or, uh, uh, you know, he, his famous comment about, you know, patriotism can be bought for, for a five pound note. Um, so he used that and he, he had a, uh, a whole set of informers that he, that he used. He wasn't involved in the sometimes cutthroat politics of, of Dublin Castle. He kept his position and his power by not actually being a politician. And of course, politics and the police force go hand in glove. It, it, there is always politics at the higher echelons of, of, of police activity. So to have a policeman who wasn't involved in politics and who did tend to stand back was fairly un unique. But Malin was now deeply embroiled in the worst political assassination the country had ever seen. Not to mention that within the half hour leading up to the attack, he was potentially in a position to stop it. He, he, was, he was caught off the hop. Um, the, 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 the big time they messed this one up. Nobody had told Malin what was going on, you see. And remember, you know, today a detective, you imagine, you know, we've all seen the TV shows, so you think how, you know how they work. They, they'll hear something, their ears will prick up and they think, oh God, I've got to find out what this is about. And they'll put two and two together and come up with five. But in those days, they didn't. They got the information first. They got it from somebody they paid or didn't pay, it didn't matter. They got the information and acted on the information. Malin didn't have the information, so there was nothing he could act on. If he'd been given information and he didn't act on it, that would be a different matter. But he wasn't. He was simply told, it's a dangerous place. They might actually be able to get you. So he left. That was all. In the circumstances of agrarian agitation in Ireland in the early 1880s for the senior civil servant in Dublin Castle and the political head of the department to be strolling up Chesterfield Avenue in the Phoenix Park on a sunny May afternoon uh, without any security, uh, beggar's belief. Uh, so I, I, I think the pressure on Mallon probably was as a result of the failure of his department. The information that Mallon picks up from the scene is vague and unreliable. The witness accounts are far from helpful. Statements conflict with each other. The attackers had American accents. Their hats were American. The driver had a bloated red face. 
One of them, sallow. They were respectable looking, tradesmen. They were rough looking. There was a green car, a shabby looking car. Park ranger George Godden saw a red jaunting car with four passengers. Slouch hats pulled down over their eyes, race out the park on the Chapel Lizard side. A member of the public reported his dog had been run over and killed by a speeding car. Some mistook the attack for a mere struggle, horseplay, a drunken scuffle. A young boy reported that he saw men wrestling. Two cyclists passed by on penny farthings and passing the fight on the roadway, pedalled onwards, though not out of earshot before hearing Brady's yell as he attacked. Unbeknownst to him at the time, the Viceroy had seen the attack take place from his window. Uh, well, and, and of course, Spencer had, uh, the Earl Spencer, the, the Lord Lieutenant, had saw a scuffle taking place and thought it was just drunks or something. And there he, it was half his government, two-thirds of his government was being murdered at the time. Crowds gather around the bodies, some disrespectfully removing bits of the bloodstained soil from where the bodies fell. Police have to intervene. If Mallon was hoping to spot any guilty parties lingering among the crowd, he wouldn't. Their target downed, the Invincibles fled the park in two separate cars. Kavna's car, which had sped past Park Ranger Godden, exited out of the Chapelizet gate. Skin the Goat took his passengers out onto the North Circular Road. Both parties kept an eye out to make sure they weren't being followed, guns at the ready in case they needed to shake a tail. Taking a long detour through Dublin City, Brady and Kelly would eventually stop to clean their knives in the grass of Tala before approaching the city again at a less conspicuous pace. While Tim Kelly left the group to catch a tram to his mother's, his colleagues ventured into Davies Tavern in Upper Leeson Street, now the site of the Leeson Lounge, drinking to their victory. In Ireland, those who had not heard the news of the assassinations on Saturday may have first heard it in the churches on Sunday. The morning after the murder, James Carey took his wife and children to church. One can only imagine him feigning horror at the news from the previous evening. Reports of the assassinations go international, though information is still scarce. The Post reports that Gladstone's government inflamed the minds of Ireland beyond repair. The new Prussian Cross Gazette predicts that England would now require a heavier hand and less leniency when it came to the Irish question. Irish papers report the news with a horrified tone, despite murmurings of exultation apparently spreading among some in the lower classes. I think the ordinary respectable and in inverted commas middle class, uh, Catholic or Protestant, it doesn't matter which, was shocked at what had happened. I mean, uh, Dublin was a respectable Victorian city. These sort of things didn't happen. Okay, you occasionally had the, a riot and the, the, the mounted police had to come out and sort things out and policemen's helmets floated down the, uh, down the Liffey. But for something like that to happen, was the sort of thing that happened abroad. It was a, it was a foreign thing. It was the sort of thing. Uh, it was in Russia they assassinated people. They didn't assassinate people in Ireland or, or, or in England. Assassination is not part of British culture in the same way as it is in, in American culture. So from that point of view, um, that also adds to the shocking impact of the thing. It's not part of the culture. It's not the Wild West as in America. 
The second point which has intrigued me, and I've never seen it discussed by anybody, but in 1881, uh, the newly elected James Garfield was assassinated in America. And I wonder whether this might not have inspired the idea of political assassination in the minds of the Invincibles or whoever stood behind them. All in all, there's a general condemnation for the killings, fueled by the brutality and the savage nature of the attack. Why did they use these, 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 these knives, these surgical knives? Why did they use that? And why, I mean, because you, you just take out a pistol and you, you, you got the guy, you, 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 you pop him off and you plug him in, 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 in seconds flat. Why knives and not guns? But I mean, why specific knives? Why Sabatier sur surgical knives? Um, because it was a surgical excision. They were taking this man out, excising him like you would a boil or, you know, a, whatever. But secondly, if they simply stabbed him with a dagger, it would be an ordinary murder. If they'd shot him, of course, it would be an ordinary murder. But this wasn't. This was a surgical assassination. They did all of that in order to maximise the horror of what happened. And you can use words like savagery without knocking what they're doing, because in fact this is what they want you to say about it. This is, this is what they were using to get the publicity. The knives, I suppose, also meant that the injuries to the to deceased men were particularly gruesome. Uh, and uh, there are autopsy reports which uh, were published in the press at the time, which make grim reading. Grim listening, too. On removing the clothing, I found several wounds. There was a deep and long wound on the front and side of the neck. There was a wound over the cartilage of the second rib left side. There were two slight wounds on the finger, the index finger of the left hand, and also a wound on the second finger of the same hand, splitting the nail and finger for about an inch. On opening the chest, I could not find a cause of death there. I then found the wound of the shoulder severed the main artery and vein going to the arm the auxiliary vessels. This wound caused death by hemorrhage. Death was very rapid. Following the post-mortem, the deceased are placed into temporary coffins and escorted by police to the deer room of the Chief Secretary's Lodge. Burke is buried in Glasnevin on May the 9th, surrounded by police. Cavendish is brought back to England to be buried on May 11th in Derbyshire less than a week after he had arrived in Dublin. Parnell and his colleagues in the Land League issue a manifesto, published in the Freeman's Journal, stating that The evil destiny, which has apparently pursued us for centuries, has struck another blow at our people, which cannot be exaggerated in its disastrous consequences. It would go on to say that No act has ever been perpetrated in our country during the struggle for social and political rights for the past 50 years that has so stained the name of hospitable Ireland as this cowardly and unprovoked assassination of a friendly stranger. And that until the murders of Lord Frederick Cavendish and Mr. Burke are brought to justice, that stain will sully our nation's name. A joint notice under Parnell and Davitt offered a reward. The nationalist establishment 
uh, were appalled by the by the murder of Cavendish. Uh, and it undermined, it certainly threatened to undermine the the new policy of cooperation that the Kilmeno Treaty represented and therefore threatened to undermine any support in Britain for home rule. The nationalist leaders would have moved very quickly to uh, cut off any possible sympathy for the, um, for the Invincibles. Others in the League, such as Patrick Egan, condemn the attack, but also take the opportunity to remind people that the assassinations were not the only act of violence in the country, alluding to a sense of justification. We are all horrified at the awful tragedy of Saturday night. We condemn and deplore it in the strongest manner and can only account for it as the terrible result of the brutal tyranny practised in Ireland during the past seven months a sample of which we had only on Friday last, when seven helpless and unoffending children were mercilessly mangled by police buckshot at Ballina, County Mayo. While most lament the death of Burke, it is the killing of Cavendish, mere hours into his role in the country, that stuns the masses. Whilst there were, maybe the more cynical might have thought that Burke, you know, got his due desserts, which, which I think is, is, is perhaps a little unfair, but... That's what they thought. They were shocked that, that the other chap, the Cavendish, you know, got, got bumped off. You sort of get the impression that they were nearly a wee bit embarrassed about that, that they got him, because he was quite a decent fella. And they're nothing, you know, nothing personal, as they say. Whereas I think there was, there was something a bit personal about the undersecretary. So they polish off two-thirds of, of the government in one fell swoop, very dramatically. Their target was Burke. They did not know who Cavendish uh, was, and they were—they would probably have been subtle enough politically not to have wanted to kill Cavendish, and uh, that was not the key target. They never intended to murder him. They possibly, in self-defense, killed him because remember he had a stick, he had a cane, yeah. and he would have been attacking them too. It's self-defense, and even even if they deliberately killed him, it's still self-defense. They're killing him to stop him identifying him. Intentional or not. Cavendish was dead. After several failed attempts on the old chief secretary, Cavendish had been killed the first day in his role as the new one. News spread through a shocked England. The Queen's secretary informed her of the news in Windsor after dinner. Gladstone had been dining in the Austrian embassy that evening, but left before the telegram could be conveyed to him, requiring his being tracked down in Downing Street. Devastated, the Gladstones rushed over to Lucy to be by her side. Lucy had received an initial telegram informing her that her Freddy was dangerously wounded, not yet aware of his death. She maintained diaries, some of which are available online. Felix Larkin reads of her entry describing the moment the Gladstones arrived to console her. I saw his face, that's Gladstone's face, pale, sorrow-stricken, but like a prophet's in its look of faith and strength. He came up and almost took me in his arms, and his first words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he said to me, Be assured, it will not be in vain. And across all my agony there fell a bright ray of hope, and I saw in a vision Ireland at peace, and my darling's lifeblood accepted as a sacrifice for Christ's sake 
to help to bring this to pass. Gladstone and Lucy Cavendish maintained a philosophical attitude towards the murder of their family member. They hoped that the death would result in a change for the better between Ireland and England. Poet Jessica Trainer reads some verse composed by Gladstone on the matter. On reconcilement's altar laid this high peace offering may avail the work of angel hosts to aid and turn to joy a nation's wail. To purge a blot from history's page, to end a tale of woe and sin, and conjure back the fiendish rage to hell that feeds the war of kin. The ancient grudge, the feud of blood, may cease to foul the hearts of men, and passion's desolating flood return within its banks again. For now, Gladstone's government, urged strongly by Spencer from Ireland, rushes through the Prevention of Crime Ireland Bill, which now strengthens the Coercion Act rather than suspending it. The parties in the House of Commons bicker over the events of May 6th, the causes and the correct action to take, using the assassination to try to one-up each other. Forster, with all his righteous indignation, notably takes an I told you so stance. Writer Tom Corf notes they were back to treating Ireland with as much regard as a football. Immediately after the attack, Mallon has all seaports contacted and officers sent to alert RIC stations. All ships and trains leaving Dublin are watched. Butchers in the city with Fenian connections are questioned due to the nature of the unusual wounds. Many are arrested with no valid reason. The Liffey and neighbouring waterways are searched for the murder weapons. The diving bell, now open to tourists on Sir John Rogerson's quay, lowers divers into the water to aid them in the search. Heightened security is provided to all officials. Nothing would be the same again. Um, trust, in inverted commas, in a sense was destroyed. Um, you know the informality of the security system would be overhauled and would never be the same again. There's an immediate and very physical effect. The policing <laughs> got very tough, obviously. Uh, it had to be, they needed a result. People were lifted left, right and centre. Uh, more and more informers being turned. Um, very divisive thing at the time. Phoenix Park was now patrolled extensively by police. All licensed cabs, over 100, were seized and their drivers in their thousands detained for examination and questioning. This results in a large public protest, with drivers eager to make it clear they were not associated with the crime, unaware that two of their number actually were. Mallon, via his web of informers, was keeping an ear out for whispers of names of the guilty parties. He very quickly purported to know who some of the men involved were, but wouldn't name a source. Mallon knew more than he... He went to his grave with knowledge. There's no question about that, that he did not divulge. And there's that, there's that wonderful scene, and you could just see it if they ever make a sort of TV drama of, of, of Mallon being summoned to the Viceregal Lodge and in, in, in the drawing room, and the uh, Lord Sp Earl Spencer saying to him, uh, Inspector Mallon, you know, what is your source? You know, who, who, who did this? And he, he's saying, you know, I, I'm not divulging my source, sir. And, uh, uh, but I'll get your man for you, sort of thing. 
Malin never had to give up his source, and he never did. He did take it to his grave, and we can now only speculate as to who gave him the information. It seems likely it was John Kenny, but this is based mostly on the knowledge he was due to meet Malin the evening of the assassinations, a potential coincidence. But England wasn't happy with the efforts of law enforcement in Ireland. Spencer complains to Gladstone and urges a more focused, centralised investigation via a permanent secret service department. A new role is created with the title Assistant Undersecretary for Police and Crime to be ultimately filled by Edward George Jenkinson. George Trevelyan became the new Chief Secretary and Robert Hamilton replaced Burke. Despite the ease with which the various bills allow police to arrest and detain suspects, a crime of this nature warranted that the evidence which could secure a conviction was as solid as possible, allowing the state to punish the guilty with as much confidence as they could muster. Though the plainclothes officer from the park could verify that Carey and others were in the park the evening of the murder, nothing else was deemed as sufficient evidence to ensure they would be convicted. The main crux of the investigation became hinged on finding evidence that would hold up in court. In a world long before DNA or fingerprints, before the word forensics was even uttered, police relied heavily on a few particulars. Physical evidence, eyewitnesses, informers. The witnesses had done little to help Malin. The cyclists who heard Brady yell, you villain, relayed their story to the inspector, unsure who had uttered the words, the attacker or the victims, and Malin was inclined to dismiss them both as a result of them apparently being drunk. Malin has his own tactics. He has the offers of rewards read to every locked up Fenian in his cell when they're alone, hoping to entice an informer forward. He was a man with his ear to the ground with regards to political crime. He focused on that over all else, so when he makes the following claim, it's likely true. We can of course choose to question the validity based on whether or not we believe he's trying to appear more successful in hindsight. But it may be said now that long before it was possible to put the men in the dock with the necessary evidence to ensure a conviction, I was aware of every man who had been concerned in the actual carrying out of the plot. Even better was to have the suspects in jail already, ripe for bargaining and deal-making. In Frederick Moir Boosie's Recollections of John Mallon, the writer describes finding Mallon at his duties in exchange court the Tuesday after the killings. Mallon tells him that he knows who drove the assassin's car and gives a description of the driver, the car, and the pony. Then, he brings Boosie to an inner room where sitting beside the fire is cabman Michael Kavanagh. In the next episode, A Helpful Murder. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Mariana O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Michal O'Dwivlin, Felix Larkin and Donald McCracken. Actors in this episode are Paul Butler Lennox, Morgan C. Jones, Oshin DeLonga, M.J. Sullivan, Declan Rudden, Maeve De Bruyne, Dylan Flynn, Julianne Finan, Ferdia McGengisa, Alan McCrory, Jared Shannon. Poetry is read by Irish poet Jessica Trainer. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King 
and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates.